0: there are some aspects to what happens after death that we will not know until we experience them. For example, John tells us that while we know we will be resurrected from the dead, we know very little about the type of body we will inhabit. The only thing we can know for sure is our resurrected body will be like the resurrected body of Jesus. He tells us this in 1 John chapter 3, verse two. What will we do in heaven? Will all of our eternal existence be spent praising God? Or will we be tasked with certain responsibilities and tasks much like some of the angels? So for all the New Testament reveals about what happens after death, much remains shrouded in mystery. One question many of us want answered is, will we know other people in heaven? From the outset, let me say, I hope so. There are many dear people who I would like to see again if at all possible. But there is another side to this answer that's worth considering. Before I get into my answer, please help me out. I want the Gospel of Jesus Christ to reach as many people as possible. If you're watching this video on YouTube, please hit subscribe and that little bell icon to receive updates when I upload new content. I can't do this without your help, so thanks for the assist. All right, now back to the question, will we know each other in heaven? There are some who would answer, no, we will not know each other in heaven. And I can understand where they're coming from. Their reasoning goes something like this. Scripture says in Revelation 21, 4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. In heaven, all causes for sorrow have been eliminated. There are no more reasons to cry or to feel pain. If that's true, then what about people we knew and loved here on earth who did not make it to heaven? If we know one another in heaven, and if we know there are people close to us who are not in heaven, would we not be sorrowful knowing they were in hell? Thus, it might be better if God erased or altered our memories of our earthly lives in some way so that we would not be cognizant of who is missing. No memories mean no reason for sorrow. But it seems to me this line of reasoning, though it makes some sense, overlooks a couple of key points. The first is the most obvious. Do we have any clear scriptural evidence that God will comfort us in this way by wiping our memories? Do other Bible passages indicate that our memories will be altered to the degree that we will no longer know one another? Is there any corroborating evidence that supports this extrapolation? The second is less obvious, though. Can we fully anticipate how we will be impacted by divine judgment? I have an inkling of what it will be like to stand before the throne of God in judgment. But it's only a notion based on scant information provided by the Bible. When God reaches the end of his discourse with Job, the righteous man's response is insightful. Job confesses he has no response, that he had speculated about things he had no right to speculate about that for the first time, Job sees God as he is. When confronted with the reality of God, Job is left speechless and humbled. There no longer remained an objection to be raised or a grievance to be aired. Job's example reminds me of what Paul says in Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. It is impossible to fully anticipate how the judgment of God will impact all of us and what its ensuing implications will be. If I see someone I love condemned to hell, will I weep? I think so. It's difficult to imagine that such a thing would not upset me. But will I carry that sorrow into heaven? It's difficult, again, to imagine that I would not. But let's not forget, we're all a bit like Job in this instance. Seeing God in all of His majesty and experiencing divine judgment will affect us in ways we cannot anticipate. On the flip side, we also cannot fully anticipate the depth and breadth and length and height of divine comfort. God comforts us in countless ways as we walk here by faith. But God's methods of consolation, like all of His blessings, they're inherently limited by the constraints of this physical realm that's ruled by sin and death. As some of us have come to learn, there are some pains, some sorrows, some heartaches that cannot be escaped. Time does not heal all wounds. One of the underlying messages communicated by Revelation 21.4 is the boundaries that hinder us in this world will be removed. Is it possible that when those restraints are swallowed up in victory, when the unfettered potential of divine consolation is poured without measure, that the deepest of sorrows are fully assuaged? Or to put it another way, Are we certain that we will require a full memory wipe and enter a city of complete strangers in order to have our tears dried? Is it possible that the comfort and bliss of heaven is far greater than we could ever imagine? So I'm just not sure what to think about a divine memory wipe. God wiping our memories in order to comfort us from loss seems reasonable. But we cannot anticipate the effect of divine judgment. Like Job, who was left without complaint or grievance, we too will be profoundly affected in ways we can't imagine. And when the restraints of this world are once and for all time loosed, we may well discover a measure of comfort unimaginable to us in our present state. The best evidence we have in Scripture points to our personalities and identities remaining intact following death. The earliest example that came to my mind was when King Saul sought out the counsel of a medium in 1 Samuel chapter 28. Saul has been relentlessly pursuing David, attempting to put the successor to the throne to death, but has so far been unsuccessful. Because of Saul's rebellion, his jealousy, and his vengeance, the Lord has cut off all communication with the king. Desperate to know what to do next... Saul resorts to visiting a medium. He does so in disguise and demands that the medium contact the dead prophet Samuel. To her surprise, the medium successfully reaches Samuel and he appears before the king. In this curious episode, Scripture presents Samuel's personality and identity as intact. Even though Samuel is dead, He is without question, in Saul's mind, the prophet Samuel. And Samuel retains memories of what he had told Saul in the past, as well as the ability to predict future events. A similar portrayal is found in Luke 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Two men, a wealthy man and a poor beggar who sat at the wealthy man's gate, die and end up in two very different places. The Jews of Jesus' day interpreted great wealth as a sign of righteousness, but this rich man ends up among the wicked after death. Like the story of the medium recalling the spirit of Samuel, the memories, personalities, and identities of the principal characters remain intact. The rich man is numbered among the dead transgressors, but recalled his living family who needs to be warned about this terrible place of torment. Now someone might observe that the rich man's memories remained intact because he was in the place of torment. Nothing is said about Abraham and Lazarus. Remember though, when Abraham talks with the rich man, the patriarch knew something about the life Lazarus experienced. Abraham is not omniscient, so how would he know about Lazarus' life? Probably because Lazarus shared those experiences with Abraham. So, I find many reasons to conclude from both of these examples that memories, personalities, and identities remain intact following death for both the unrighteous and the righteous. One last thing, and this is along the same line of thinking I was exploring earlier. Whatever we think heaven will be, we are likely wrong. We know heaven will be a beautiful, magnificent place. It's the dwelling place of God. But will it have streets of gold? Will it be a city on a mountain? Will it be surrounded by a wall? As I read the book of Revelation, I cannot help but notice the ubiquitous use of symbolism. And I see no reason to believe that this changes once we reach Revelation 21 and 22. It's a book full of symbolism. In John 16.21, Jesus compares his resurrection from the dead to a woman giving birth, and the comparison is apt. A baby in the womb has a sense of what the world beyond his or her mother's body is like, but it is a relatively limited sense. And the world beyond that womb is being interpreted by a brain that is developing and does not fully develop until years into its growth. For us, the anticipation of heaven is much the same way. Regardless of our intellect, accurately anticipating what heaven will be like is an impossible proposition. God has communicated it to us in ways we can comprehend using symbols that give us something concrete to latch onto. But we are truly no better off than that baby who senses a bigger world beyond, but who in no way can fully comprehend what lies ahead. So, whatever we think heaven might be like, we're probably wrong. God, however, does not expect us to understand, and we don't have to understand in order to reach that glorious place. Our focus should be on walking by faith while allowing the hope for something far, far better to cheer us along, to motivate us, and to stir our imaginations for the possibilities of what lies ahead. Thanks for listening to the Gospel Saves podcast. If you found this program useful, please visit thegospelsaves.me to find blogs, videos, and Bible studies. If you enjoyed the music on this podcast, please visit acapeldridge.com. You can also find Acapeldridge on Apple Music, Google Play, Spotify, YouTube, and Facebook. May God bless you as you seek to know His perfect will.